This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. What contributions do classical liberals have to offer in attempting to heal racial pain and divisions in the U.S. and make good on the promise for government to do right by all of its citizens? Rachel Ferguson is co-author of the new book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. We spoke this week. Shortly after Breonna Taylor was killed uh, in Louisville, I live just outside of Louisville. My friend who writes columns in a local paper was having a, a question about, well, you know, what should I write about in response to this? And one of my thoughts was, well, there are a lot of different promises that America makes to people, and particularly in the black community. Uh, it doesn't seem like those promises have been followed through on, at least if if you're looking at it from the outside in, you say, well, these uh, a whole lot of these people are being treated very poorly uh, in, a, in a way that appears in, to exist in a consistent way. And my suggestion to him was, if you want these promises to appear credible to this community, that is, you know, uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and on all of the things that that entails by creating a legal system to create those things. If you want those promises to appear credible to that community, it would really help if they actually were credible. So you've written this book that I think takes that in a pretty systematic way and breaks down what the failures are in sort of the American promise. Yeah, that's right. And I actually love that story. That's a really good way of presenting exactly what we want to do here. Uh, You know, we can go on and on about the wonders of the American founding and the brilliance of our Constitution, both of which I totally agree with. But we, as you said, will have no credibility with certain communities if we do not very clearly acknowledge the ways in which they were not allowed to benefit from the things that we value, property rights, freedom of contract, equal protection of the rule of law, flourishing markets. If they were not allowed to benefit from those and they were shut out and excluded, that needs to be made very clear. And we need to make it very clear how we plan on changing that in the future. Obviously, some of that has been resolved, but I think classical liberals in particular have been some of the best at saying some of it has not. Uh, For instance, when we talk about things like uh, criminal justice reform and the mass incarceration crisis. So that's right. Very much in the spirit of the book. Yeah. So how, how do you break down the elements in your book about it, categorically what needs to be addressed? And, and, and it should be noted that your book is really an appeal to the right, which I think I think so. I think has, you know, has broadly I, uh, had a it been of, of a mixed bag when it comes to trying to appeal in particular to black Americans. Yeah, I'm certainly hard on progressives in the book. They take a little bit of a beating, but I don't necessarily expect to uh, convince progressives. I don't know that progressives will read the book as much as people on uh, the conservative or classical liberal circles may do. Uh, So that's right. It is kind of uh, put towards uh, conservative and libertarian types. And what we do is we really open with a general explanation of classical liberalism. We try to show right off the bat that there is a strong pro-black classical liberal tradition. And then we go chronologically. So we start with slavery. We talk about the economics of slavery debate between the historians and the economists. And we go post-Reconstruction, things like the convict leasing program that was such a terrible 
a humanitarian violation, uh, moving up into eugenics and the rise of the minimum wage, which was deeply racist. Uh, President Wilson and some of his incredibly racist progressive programs. Uh, then looking at things like, you know, we've talked a lot about redlining these days, but uh, what people don't often hear about are things like the way that highways were constructed or the way that urban renewal proceeded. And it was really a violation of property rights. It was a kind of eminent domain abuse that was so massive that it just absolutely exploded uh, a lot of black neighborhoods that were working class, but they were up and coming. They were upwardly mobile and they just got thrown to the four winds in a way that can do nothing but undermine uh, the sorts of thick civil society institutions that we rely on for economic flourishing, along with other kinds of flourishing. And so conservatives are right to be worried about things like the welfare state, but they need to add on to that these other concerns, right, about structural um, projects such as the highways. And then, of course, we talk about uh, the drug war and mass incarceration from a very classical liberal perspective. And in a way, the entire book is a version of one of our solutions that we discuss, which is called transitional justice, because part of transitional justice is to do justice to our history. It's to honor the survivors. And so how do we look at the system of Jim Crow, for instance, and really get honest and tell the truth so that we can move on? You can't move on without having that conversation. Uh, but then, of course, we talk about some of our classical liberal favorites like educational freedom, economic freedom, criminal justice reform. But one that I think uh, classical liberals are not quite as familiar with is neighborhood stabilization. So that fifth one is really very dear to my heart because that's that street level, bottom up, decentralized, hyper local, personal presence kind of work that has to be done neighborhood by neighborhood in order to rebuild all that's been lost through all of these terrible policies. All right. So what does that look like? Neighborhood stabilization. Yeah. So I'm actually involved with an organization called Love the Lou in St. Louis. You can look them up at lovethelou.com. And, and we're very much in the tradition of some books you may have heard of, like Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton or When Helping Hurts by Brian Ficker. You may have heard of Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center or John Perkins of the Christian Community Development Association. And all of these thinkers, I call them the prophets of neighborhood stabilization because what they're pointing out is even if you have a great idea, like let's say we think economic opportunity zones are a good idea. Some of these policies are actually bad, right? They create unintended consequences. Others of these policies might be a good idea, but oftentimes still fail because members of the community simply do not have the bandwidth to take advantage of them. We forget that people people in highly destabilized neighborhoods don't have one problem. They have 10, right? They may have trauma. They may have no housing. They may have a police record. They may have, right? It's a lot of things together. And so asking somebody to come out of their community and take advantage of your food pantry or your financial planning seminar or whatever is not going to be transformative. It is not going to. You're going to have to go into the neighborhood and surround people with resources and so usually what it looks like is one person who sees this as almost their mission in life, right? And so they may actually move into the neighborhood, um, but they are drawing on the networks. What we often forget is that poverty is, net uh, many times it's network poverty. It's a kind of isolation. 
And so they're drawing on the rest of us out in the suburbs for those networks. And they're bringing in community gardens, they're rehabbing houses, they're working with the neighbors who they know very, very well in order to get those kids working in the gardens young and getting job experience and creating pipelines into college and jobs and so forth. And it's all very much one person at a time, one block at a time kind of work. And so we need that decentralized work that's coming from the bottom up to close the gap between our neighbors and the kind of centralized policies that we're, that we're bringing from above, right? So yes, educational freedom is great. Charter schools will be, will help and criminal justice reform will help. That's all needed too. But by itself, it'll never heal these really broken communities, right? You've got to kind of close that gap. Looking back through history, particularly, uh, most especially black history in the United States of America, where have we seen the best examples of what you describe as black liberation through the marketplace? Oh, that's great. So one of the things I was really pleased to discover as I did the research for the book is that there is a strong pro-Black classical liberal tradition. Um, So for instance, in all my years in the liberty movement, I don't know that I ever really understood that a huge portion of the abolitionist movement was seriously free market. And I mean like radically free market. Um, I did not know that Garrison was, you know, wanted to shut down every tariff collecting house in the world if he could have, you know, if he could have snapped his fingers. I didn't know about uh, uh, Stowe. I didn't know about, you know, those that abolitionist uh, Emerson is another example, right? That abolition, abolitionist free market movement. Um, even the uh, even Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, you know, these are all guys that are arguing slavery is not just morally wrong, but economically stupid. Right. And so you have that from the very beginning. And then as you work your way through, of course, Frederick Douglass is the greatest of all time. Right. He's the best example, I think, of a, a, a pro-black classical liberal. But you also have people like Rose Wilder Lane, Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter. Right. Um, who we call one of the three mothers of libertarianism. And she was writing for the biggest black newspaper in the United States, the Pittsburgh Courier. And she was arguing for black rights based on the Constitution, property rights, freedom of contract, et cetera. She was arguing against zoning, you know, things like that. Um, And you have other figures like Zora Neale Hurston or T.R.M. Howard, who were sort of heterodox in their thought. Um, George Schuyler, or Schuyler, if you pronounce it that way, is another example from the Pittsburgh Courier. And these were guys who really were very pro-Black, very pro-civil rights, but had an anti-New Deal perspective, for instance. Um, They were individualists. They were very... Um, skeptical of going to the government for economic help. They wanted to see the black community lift itself up. And so you have that strain kind of all the way through. And then it's harder to see, I feel like in the 70s and 80s, but what you do see, I think, is the rise of concerns over the drug war and mass incarceration, which, although maybe not pro-Black in intention, uh, is pro-Black, right? Ultimately, because you have a community who is disparately affected by those terrible policies. And so I think now you see some sort of libertarian and classical liberal types circling back around and understanding this is really something that we can do uh, in defense of the black community. You mentioned T.R.M. Howard. I know that David Beto has written uh, extensively about uh, T.R.M. Howard. Um, and uh, David Beto has also written extensively about the mutual aid societies that were right. run by black Americans, black physicians. Uh, after they these groups had essentially just been shut out of the 
traditional medical profession in the United States. Yeah. And so so my co-author, Marcus Witcher, is actually a student of David Beto's. So we're bringing a, a lot of that to bear. And actually, you can go back even further, right? You can look at the amazing um, literacy leap that was made by the African-American community after emancipation. A lot of that was through the Black church, of course, which we consider sort of the cultural womb of Black America. We have a whole chapter on the Black church very important civil society institution that was kind of a network for almost everything that Black Americans did, opening tons of schools, the whole HBCU network, and then that morphing into things like not only the mutual aid societies, but also the National Negro Business League and those sorts of efforts. And so, and the NAACP eventually. Um, That's right. And so mutual aid societies are a great example because they're totally organic, totally bottom-up, It's a situation in which people are basically creating an insurance system, except it's not actually based on pooling your risk. It's just if you're involved, you're involved, you know, and they they help you, you know. So if you got injured on the job or something, they would help you get through that period. But the thing about mutual aid societies are a really interesting example because, you know, even if the main purpose was insurance, there's a lot of secondary effects of those sorts of civil society institutions, right? So if you're meeting together, you might say, get a loan from someone because you're having a face-to-face interaction with them, no interest loan or something like that. Once you have to see the rise of social security and so forth, you get what you you might call government crowd out, right? And so government crowd out gets rid of the thing that the organization did in terms of its main task. But once the organization is gone, you also lose those secondary effects, right? You also kind of reduce the community that that organization brought. And so you had something like half of Black American men involved in these mutual aid societies in the early 20th century, and many of them are now gone. Now, a few of them still exist, uh, but many of them are now gone, and I think it is due to things like government crowd out. And so that's a real danger to think through. Uh, How much do you go into, uh, I haven't finished the book, how much do you go into trying to come up with a a sense of of the value of those secondary relationships that are created by this initial civil society organization. It, I, I got to think it's understated elsewhere in the studies of, of these groups. Yeah, so we're not necessarily doing any like social scientific measurement of those things, but we're definitely trying to convey the general classical liberal concept of civil society and all that we rely on, really, that a, that a, a, an ideal classical liberal society needs more of that and more thick civil society institutions than, uh, you know, say, a, a European country who has the government itself doing a lot. And of course, we always think of the famous Tocqueville quote, right, where he says that, you know, if something's being done in England, it'll be done by uh, a great lord. If something's being done in France, it'll be being done by the government. And if it's if we need to do something in America, we form a club, right? And that's that's the, that's the spirit of the United States. Um, you really, really see this with the Black Church. I, I I don't mean to kick a dead horse there, but but you can see it in the way that we that the institutions roll out of the church. So, for instance, you get the end It's it's so interesting to see the connections because if you look at the business community, the political organizing, and the church, the connection is so tight. So, for instance, Madam C.J. Walker gave the NAACP the biggest gift they'd ever received so far. Many of these great entrepreneurs, you know, she was the great hair care entrepreneur, right? Netflix did the self-made 
uh, series on her. Really fun story. And she she was next door neighbors with Henry Ford. It's astounding how, how far she got. And so a lot of this National Negro Business League work that Booker T. Washington did, even though we put Washington and Du Bois against each other, a lot of people think of it that way historically, it's so not true because Booker T. Washington was building the middle and upper class Black America that was going to fund the NAACP, right? That was going to fund all of these cases. And Washington himself was secretly funding many of these cases. And Du Bois knew that. Uh, and really shouldn't have badmouthed him the way that he did if he had if he had been honest. And so you see that. And then you see the way that the civil rights movement evolved with this sort of spiritual sensibility. Right. That was one of, hey, this system doesn't just harm us. It harms white people, too. It harms them in their souls. And that's a totally uh, just such an advanced kind of approach, ethically speaking, that informed uh, most of the civil rights movement. And really, I would say the the spirit of it that 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 most black Americans uh, followed. And so there's such a tight connection between the spiritual movement, the businesses that are coming out of efforts like Booker T. Washington and then groups like the NAACP as they as they fight for the political rights. There's a whole lot that. It seems like it's common understanding by uh, the educated parts of America. That is, the drug war is a massive failure with uh, disproportionate effects on minority and low-income people. Uh, And yet, even even though it seems to be widely understood, movement is at a glacial pace. And and that is true for a whole host of issues. I think we're just beginning to see uh, the problems associated with uh, policies like zoning, uh, like yeah, that's right. how how cities develop and who gets to make what decisions about where roads go, like highways, as you mentioned. We're just really beginning to understand uh, the consequences of that. And yet, even when it is well understood, it's hard to see how uh, changes will come about. Yeah, and it, I, I I hate to, to sound very traditional from a, a classical liberal perspective, but I think it goes right back to Mansur Olson, right? And the logic of collective action. Uh, that's really the problem we're seeing here. So we have concentrated benefits and dispersed costs, and that's what makes it so hard to dismantle. Because the bureaucracy that benefits from, uh, for instance, the drug war, or you might say certain kinds of communities that believe that they're benefiting from zoning, um, they get to point right at those concentrated benefits and say, see, here's my home value or see, uh, you know, here's here's my job. And the dispersed costs are even more dispersed in some sense because the people who are suffering the most are not visible or not as visible to us. So if it were our own kids being mistreated in the way that some of these kids are being mistreated because of the drug war, things might change a lot quicker. But it's often the voiceless, right? It's often the powerless who are the most abused. And so that dispersed cost effect is almost worse as a result of that. That class difference, I think, makes such a huge difference in class and race are, are integrated in American history in such a way that they can almost not be you know, it's hard to it's hard to unbraid that braid. Right. Um, and so I agree that it's moving slowly. So what we did in the book is we tried to hone in on where people are at right now. 
So when it came to criminal justice reform, we jumped right in on possible solutions, you know, looking at Injustice for All by by uh, Jason Brennan and Chris Supernot, for instance, uh, locked in by John Pfaff. You know, what's really going on here? What's at the root? Don't get caught up in what's a sexy explanation uh, so that you're, you know, you're saying, well, if it's about racism, then we need to have DEI training. No, 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 no. If you go back, you've got issues like prosecutorial discretion. It may be boring, but go to the boring stuff and fix the boring stuff. But when it comes to things like zoning, I feel like the community at large is more innocent about that stuff and they need more education before they can begin to think about uh, solutions in more detail. And so it was bringing that up and helping people to understand just how damaging those policies have been. Uh, that was our main task in the book. And then saying, OK, now you have the conversation. Now you start thinking through how we can start to undo some of this. I'm not going to name any names here, but uh, it is my experience that libertarians are generally terrible at talking about issues related to race and the current consequences of past injustice related to race. So what is the what is the aim for people who are classical liberals or libertarians? Um, what should they be expected to do with what you and others have put together in your uh, academic work to try to give us this set of facts? Yeah. So I think part of my whole motivation in writing the book is that I don't understand why libertarians and classical liberals are bad at talking about race, because if you look at the history, particularly in the 20th century, so much of what you see that was racist and that was harmful to black Americans, structurally so, meaning de jure, right, by law. So much of what you see is the product of massive progressive projects handing over millions of dollars of government money to state and municipal leaders and allowing them to carry out their racist intentions with our tax money. I mean, it should be the easiest slam dunk thing for libertarians and classical liberals to be able to talk about, but we don't. And part of the reason we don't is because even though we have a ton of insights, we haven't collected them all together in one place. We've got Becker on discrimination. We've got Robert Higgs on post-reconstruction. We've got this great work that's been done, but we haven't gathered it all and said, classical liberals understand America's history of race and we can contribute to the conversation and to the solutions. So that's really the purpose of the book is to bring it all together and say, you can tell this story. You can speak on it with intelligence and grace. You can be a peacemaker in our highly polarized and tribalized society that we're this moment that we're in right now. Classical liberals can be a source of, of peace and innovation, right? Thinking through things outside of the box, outside of the, the left-right uh, stultifying uh, polarized story. We can break out of those bundles, unbundle those bundles, start taking issues one at a time, and showing people how it works in terms of rights, in terms of economics, and in terms of economic flourishing. And so I would hope that people would approach the book in that spirit and that they would be uh, open-minded. Rachel Ferguson is co-author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>